part of evil reigning in increasing manner on the earth is this idea that between now and the return of Jesus, there's going to be this worldwide anti-Israel, anti-Jewish sentiment. And if my theology as a believer in Jesus concurs with the idea that God would support the Jewish people being wiped off the face of the earth for their rejection of Jesus and their hard-heartedness, then I'm actually participating with this diabolical plot before the return of Jesus to unleash tremendous evil on the earth and try to wipe out God's chosen people. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world in the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. Today we're going to talk about something that may sound like a big theological topic that you don't understand called replacement theology, but hopefully we're going to break it down and make it very clear so that you understand where you're at uh, and the viewpoints that we have. So let's discuss. So Ezra, replacement theology, honestly, when I started at Jewish Voice, I had never even heard of replacement theology. So if you were giving an elevator speech about replacement theology, how would you explain it to someone? Yeah. And, you know, as you said, maybe our audience hasn't even heard the term. And so they're saying, look, I've never heard of this. This doesn't concern me. But you've probably either heard of it, agreed with it to some degree, or maybe even it forms part of the foundation for your own faith. And you didn't even know what you're agreeing to. You've signed a bit of a a blank check. And it's really a dangerous one, Carly. Uh, Before you turn off the podcast, listening audience, let me me, uh, explain that a bit. What do we mean by that? Replacement theology. If I was in an elevator and had three stories to go and somebody said, what do you mean replacement theology? I would say it's the theological idea that God has rejected Israel because of Israel's disobedience to him and that he has formed a new relationship, a new covenant through Jesus with a new group of people called the church, Christians. So in essence, Israel is rejected and the church is accepted. That's the idea with replacement theology. Why replacement? Because the idea is God has actually replaced Israel with the church. That's the concept in a nutshell. So what are some statements that you might hear a church use or say that um, some of our listeners might not even recognize as replacement theology, but now if they heard them, they might say, huh, okay, maybe my church does believe that. Sure. Good question. And maybe you're already kind of excluding yourself uh, as you're listening to this from the podcast saying, no, of course God hasn't rejected Israel. Love Israel. I buy dates that are from uh, Israel, not Jordan at the supermarket. I'm all about supporting Israel. Of course God loves the Jews. Okay, we're good. But let me, as you said, Carly, let me make some statements here. If you resonate with this or have heard it in your church or congregation or even say, yeah, I think I believe that, you may be dipping your toes into the waters of replacement theology, even though a rose by any other name can smell as sweet. So here's a couple statements. The church is the new Israel. Ever heard that? Here's another one. God rejected the Jewish people and chose the nations. Here's another. The church has inherited the benefits or the blessings of all Israel, but the Jewish people, because of their disobedience, remain with the curses or the results, the consequences of breaking God's law, of turning away from him. Here's another one. The heart of God for the Jewish people is for them to, quote unquote, convert, meaning become Christians and receive Jesus. Have you ever heard that? 
when you speak about the Jewish people and the ultimate intention of God for them, what's their destiny in God? Do you use the word convert or become Christians? If you do, though you you may very well be well-intentioned, wanting to see Jewish people have a relationship with, with God the Father through Jesus, if you're using the language convert, meaning exit Judaism and enter another faith and religious system, indirectly you're reaffirming for a Jewish person the idea of replacement theology. Why? Well, we'll explain that in a couple minutes. And then here, here's kind of a final one. The Holocaust could only have happened if God forsook the Jewish people. Otherwise, how could a good God allow such terrible things to happen to a people he really loves? And maybe, right, it, it's not an unreasonable course of thoughts, right? A reasonable person would say, okay, God is good and God is all powerful and God is all knowing. And six million Jewish people who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to whatever degree perished in the camps and the ovens and in the train cars in the course of about a decade or even less than a decade under the Nazi regime. So if God is good all the time, and if six million Jews died, then somehow the goodness of God must have been permanently or entirely removed from having any effect on the Jewish people and their destiny. And you can get there, right? And then if, if we have to make, a, if, if we sit in a place where rather than letting the word of God and the promises of God currently speak for itself and inform how we look at the headlines, how we look at the history books, if we go the other way and read the headlines and read the history books and then try to do theological gymnastics to make sense of what we've read and heard and studied, then we can easily get to the place where God must have rejected the Jewish people. Otherwise, how could this happen? And it seems... Uh, innocuous, but but that's how you get there. It's not people saying, how can I you know, come up with a theology that rejects and hates God's chosen people? It's trying to make sense of history and theology and world events and the rise and fall of civilizations. And this people who somehow has always remained even a remnant of us, and yet whose history has been full of persecution, injustice, isolation, in some cases, attempted extermination, and rather than seeing, well, let me let me back up a little bit. We can get there by saying, well, if this is the if this is the plight of the Jewish people, surely they must be rejected and accursed by God. But what we're going to look at today a little bit is, unfortunately, because the church has believed in large part throughout history that the Jewish people are accursed and rejected by God, replacement theology, and the church is the new Israel, that that actually has fomented a repet like a repetitious a repetitive cycle of these persecutions and these attempted exterminations and tremendous anti-Semitism. So the replacement theology becomes the impetus for the plight of the Jewish people throughout history rather than an explanation for it. So Ezra, for those listening who may have maybe never heard this before and there may be questioning, huh, maybe I do believe this or it's something that my church has been, you know, talking about and I never really realized it. Why is it so dangerous to believe that, to believe that the church is the new Israel? You know, the way I've really been thinking about it lately, 
Carly, is almost, and you know, I'm not, I'm not an MD. So for those who are, who are listening and who have medical experience of any degree, which I don't in any degree, please forgive the imperfections in this analogy that I'm going to throw out there. It's almost like replacement theology is in a way an autoimmune disease in the body of Messiah, right? We're in the body of Christ. We're supposed to think of the church, the international body of believers, which includes Jewish and Gentile believers from Israel and the nations, right? We see that clearly in the scriptures, this body of believers. Uh, Paul and, 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 and others in the New Testament exhort us to think of the ecclesia, the body of believers, as in a way a physical body. And if I'm uh, Satan, which praise God, I'm not, but if I let's just humor me for a minute, right? And I'm going, okay, the promised Jewish Messiah, namely Jesus, we say in Hebrew, Yeshua, came in the way that the prophets foretold, lived the life the prophets said he would live, died on the cross for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and was resurrected and seen by hundreds of Jewish people who then go tell thousands of Jewish and non-Jewish people at Pentecost, Shavuot, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and this message of faith and salvation through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, begins spreading like wildfire throughout the known world among Jewish communities first and then later in Gentile communities. And I know that for me as the devil, the enemy, this is my death sentence. In essence, my days are numbered and every additional person in the Jewish community and among the nations who comes to faith is just hastening the day of my demise. Hmm, what can I do? What, what diabolical scheme can I introduce? Well, am I going to do something among the people who don't yet believe the unbelieving Jewish community or the pagans who have no idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, they're already, they're already participating with me in a life apart from God. So what if I start introducing some theological, some worldview, some paradigm disease into the body of believers itself? What if I convince leaders in the body of believers that like an autoimmune disease, that this vital organ, okay, if you will, if the body of believers is a, is a physical body, this vital organ or these vital parts of the body ordained from the foundations of the world, namely Jewish believers or the Jewish people whose destiny is faith in Jesus and salvation uh, through that name, through faith in, in him as the Messiah. What if I start introducing the church to this idea that these vital parts of its own body are actually the cause of its illness. Maybe I can get the body to start attacking itself. And just like an autoimmune disease, we see in the third and the fourth century AD, or I guess we say CE now, Carly, we see this start to take shape. And the idea was in the first century, for the first half of the first century, the vast majority of believers had a Jewish background. They were Jewish. And so they received Jesus, Yeshua, and they worshiped him as Jewish men and women and taught their Jewish children, we have a Messiah, his name is Yeshua, Jesus, and he, he's the one the prophets saw, we can worship him and remain Jews. And then as we know, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the leading of God through Jewish believers to proclaim the gospel to non-Jewish people, which was absolutely good and right, there's this, this switch happens. We see it in the book of Romans, we see it in Corinthians, we see it in Ephesians. All of a sudden, the majority of believers in Jesus who are calling upon his name aren't from a Jewish background, but as was the intention of God, nations, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, we mean when we say Gentiles, start coming to faith in droves. And now the balance is shifted where the minority of believers actually are Jewish or have a Jewish background. And so over the subsequent centuries, as the faith of the body of followers of Jesus is sort of politicized, 
according to the empire ambitions, if you will, of, of different world leaders like Constantine, we all of a sudden start to see this idea that, wait a minute, maybe the Jewish people aren't the root of the olive tree that Paul was talking about. Maybe they're actually a disease that's attacking the root. And maybe we need to start to come up with some bold statements, uh, statements of faith, if you will, that say that God has rejected the Jewish people because it's the only way we can explain this kind of sickness in the body we feel of this pull between Jewish believers and Gentile believers and this pull between uh, kind of the false dichotomy of law versus grace and works versus grace or works versus, versus faith. And so you start to see the beginnings of replacement theology in this diabolical strategy by the enemy take root. And the idea there is not only are Jewish believers the minority here, not only are Jewish people, as Paul saw, mainly blinded to the realities of who Jesus is, but in fact, Jewish people are the problem. These are an accursed people that God has rejected. And as a, as a church, we want nothing to do with them. Even more than that, let's join with the fathers of the faith who are espousing replacement theology, and let's actually lift our voice to condemn Jewish people. If they want to become Christians and join us, that's great. But if they're not for us, they're against us. And this idea of declaring the Jews to be the enemy or vilifying Jewish people starts to appear in the third and fourth centuries and really takes root in some creeds and theologies that were penned and rehearsed throughout history. And so thus you have this idea of the autoimmune disease of replacement theology. The, the, the body of believers or the family of faith that was supposed to recognize the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, namely the Jewish people, as a vital part of itself whose destiny was faith in Jesus right alongside them, seeing the Jewish people as an enemy which needed to be snuffed out. And I would say, Carly, to this day, that concept is still, it still permeates so much of Christian theology, whether people call it by that name or not. And so to answer your question after that long spiel, why is that personally dangerous? To put it simply, if I believe that Israel was disobedient enough times that God actually rejected her, right? In essence, this is the last straw. Jewish people who I've created and put my name on and redeemed from Egypt and walked through the wilderness and given the promised land. This is the last straw. I can't stand it anymore. You've disobeyed me one too many times. I'm done with you. I'm permanently rejecting you unless you surrender your own identity and convert to another religious system that I'll create from nothing. If, if that's what we believe, then, and I'm sorry to kind of introduce this uncomfortable idea for our audience, but I just want to push on this issue a little bit. If that's what I believe, then as a Christian, how many times do I have to disobey God? Or how many times do I have to turn my back on him? Or how many times do I have to mess up before he would say, you know, I'm done with you too? Because if he could reject the people who he gave his name and his word and his covenants to and said, if the sun rises today, that's how I'm remembering, you know, if I can forget my covenant with the moon and the sun that come up every day and every night, then I'll forget my covenant with you, O Israel. If he can throw that away because of disobedience and anger forever, then doesn't that put all the others in the world from a non-Jewish background who call upon his name at risk of kind of pushing God beyond his limit for the last time? And I think 
most of us, I, I hope, if you're listening, according to the scriptures, according to your faith, according to that love relationship and that connection you have with God the Father through Jesus, something in you is going, no, I, I know that no matter how far I run from him, I'm never beyond his reach. I'm never beyond his love. He's made promises to me that are forever. And I would say to you, amen. And if that's true, for you who were far off from a background that didn't know anything of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and have been brought near by the blood of his son, who died for our sins, Jew and Gentile alike, then how much more is he making an enduring promise to the people to whom he first gave his name, the Jewish people? So I think it's personally dangerous. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to believe in replacement theology because then I'm always on the razor's edge of, is God going to reject me? Did I go too far this time? Did I say no to him? Did I resist him? Is my heart too hard? And that's that's a, a dangerous place to be in terms of our theology. It's not it's not our destiny in him. It robs us of the security and the faith and the confidence we're supposed to have, Carly. So I think personally it's dangerous. And then also uh, I think it's dangerous in terms of, of, of a view back as a Christian toward the Jewish people. Paul's very clear, right? This idea of an olive tree. And he says unnatural branches, namely those people not with a Jewish background, have been grafted in and are enjoying the fatness. I love that word in the Greek, the fatness or the full blessings given to Israel. But Paul's saying, be careful. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought because you need, you need to understand, I cut off branches that belong to this tree. I, for a moment, for a season, rejected Jewish people who rejected the message of Jesus so that you could be grafted into this fullness. So I think it's dangerous in that sense also. And Paul, even in the first century, is pushing on this with the Romans, right? This vibrant Roman church growing, coming to maturity in their faith. They think they've got it all figured out. And Paul's very clear in Romans 11. I don't want you to be ignorant because if you're ignorant of what it took for you to be grafted into this tree whose root is Israel, then you're going to be wise in your own eyes. You're going to think of yourself more highly than you are, and you're going to turn and look back with disdain at the people who I love. And if you're doing that, then you're out of alignment with my heart. That's dangerous theology, not just dangerous personally, but dangerous in terms of a view of the Jewish people. So you've explained on a dangerous level that personally replacement theology is dangerous, theologically is dangerous. But what about people who have been Christians their whole life? They've been secure in their faith, have Bible history. They're strong believers, but Israel has just never been an issue for them. It's not been a focus of their faith. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it so dangerous? Yeah, I th it, it's a great question, Carly. And I think uh, the issue is that sometimes we have to make choices in what we can call our easy times so that when times get tough, we're not faced with an even harder choice. In essence, right, we have to make pre-decisions. And so people, people may be listening going, look, dangerous, Ezra. I appreciate that this is a major issue for you. You're in Jewish ministry. You know, you've studied a lot on this, but isn't dangerous kind of an exaggeration? And what I just want to point out, and again, I'd encourage, I'd, I'd encourage our listeners, check the scriptures, check the Old Testament, namely Zechariah. I'm thinking of Zechariah 12, verse 3, and then Zechariah 14, verse 2. And Zechariah is looking ahead to a day that we understand hasn't really come yet, according to the way he lays it out and the way history has played out. This is still a day that for us in 2021 is a day yet to come. And he talks about all the nations of the world will be gathered together against Jerusalem. In essence, something's going to happen in history between now and the last days and the return of Jesus, which if you're a believer listening to this, you, you I assume, believe that there is going to come a day when things are going to get very difficult on earth. 
And in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of when it looks like all might be lost, Jesus is returning. Whether you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or post, I have my thoughts on that. Spoiler alert, I think it's post. But whether we agree on that or not, I believe you are looking ahead to things getting darker in the earth and then at some point Jesus returning to rule and reign and kind of uh, judging evil and rewarding righteousness uh, as the righteous judge. But what what I see clearly in Zechariah in the scriptures and then also in, in the account of Revelation in the New Testament, Carly, is that part of things getting darker, part of evil reigning in increasing manner on the earth is this idea of a, of a turning increasingly negative sentiment on the part of the nations of the world, kind of this general worldwide sentiment, anti-Israel, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic sentiment. We've seen it crop up in history. We see it in the Book of Esther. We saw it in the Spanish Inquisition. We saw it in the pogroms. We saw it during the Nazi regime. We see it still today in isolated parts of the world, like we mentioned with persecution against Ethiopian Jewish communities by their own countrymen. But this idea that between now and the return of Jesus, there's going to be this worldwide anti-Israel, anti-Jewish sentiment. And so why is combating the idea in our own hearts, right? Let me bring it home for a minute, back to our audience. Why is it important today? If I'm saying, look, this is a non-issue, I get it, Israel's mentioned in the scriptures, not a big thing for me. Why is it important today as a Christian that I'm saying I'm going to reject a belief system that says God has rejected and cursed and is choosing to punish the Jewish people? Because there's a day coming when nations of the world are going to agree that Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth. And if my theology as a believer in Jesus concurs with the idea that God would support and condone the Jewish people being wiped off the face of the earth for their for their uh, disobedience, for their rejection of Jesus and their hard-heartedness, then I'm actually participating with this diabolical plot before the return of Jesus to unleash tremendous evil on the earth and try to wipe out God's chosen people rather than resisting that. And I'll say, I'll be so bold as to say, I believe the scriptures are clear that this is a major issue uh, by which God's going to deal with people, deal with people who call upon his name between now and his return, is what do you do? What do you think? What do you do, even if it costs you something, even if it costs you your life in days to come, uh, when people are are searching for Jewish people and searching for those who are hiding them out of this kind of venomous, drunken desire to, to kill and eliminate Jewish people, to exterminate Jewish people. It's coming again. Zechariah is clear. The book of Revelation is clear. The Nazis weren't the last attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. And so if we're neutral about the issue today and we say, oh, it's not an issue, you know, who really cares what God's doing with the Jewish people? They should just come to faith in Jesus like everybody else. Then when our lives depend upon what we do with Israel and the Jewish people, is that the time? Is that the time to choose to believe that God's still doing something with Israel that's so significant and dear to his heart that it's worth me as a Christian giving my life for that purpose out of love for him? And I would say it's never going to be easier to choose to believe in God's love and enduring faithfulness for the Jewish people than it is today. So, Am I lighting a fire under our audience a little bit to think about something more seriously than they have? Yeah, but Ezra, are you exaggerating on saying replacement theology is dangerous? I don't think so, because if it isn't today, it's certainly going to be in a day yet to come when all the nations of the earth turn their attention toward 
really eliminating the Jewish problem, eliminating the problem of Israel. And I would say, as a Christian myself, for those who think, you know, I have the strong faith, I have a solid biblical foundation, but I just, you know, Israel is not that important to me, go back and read the scriptures that you know so well and notice how often God is talking about Israel and the Jewish people. Maybe those are stories, you know, you you did as sword drills as a kid, but you you never considered them through this context, go back and see how important Israel and the Jewish people is to God. So Ezra, you mentioned that, you know, this is something that's been going on in history from decades ago in in early church history. Recently, actually, I mean, recently, about eight years ago, the what we would call the leader of one of the current denominations of Catholicism made a quote about the Jewish people that I'd like you to comment on. He said, we hold the Jewish people in special regard because their covenant with God has never been revoked for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Obviously, quoting Romans eleven twenty nine. So this is Pope Francis in 2013 making this statement. Yeah, and it's super important. And on the one hand, we say yes and amen. This, this is the Pope in, in Catholic theology, by and large. This is God's man on earth, right? This is God's representative. Apart from Jesus, this is the one. And so what the Pope says goes. His word almost becomes quasi-theology, if you will. And so we can hear this, okay, a, a church, namely a Catholic church, you know, and some who are, who are historians listening today understand that the Catholic church under Ferdinand and Isabel in Spain in 1492 launched what we know as the Spanish Inquisition. Well, what was happening there? These leaders declared their Catholic faith and out of fervency to see the Catholic faith spread throughout the known world and namely in the Spanish, in in, in the kingdom, the empire of Spain at that time, it began really a national, even an international hunt for Jewish people, either openly Jewish or hidden, pretending to be Catholic but secretly Jewish in the midst of the empire. Why? Because again, this idea of replacement theology that said God has chosen the Holy Catholic Church, we are the blessed people, and the Jews who resisted Jesus and who who resist Catholicism as a religion that we think they should convert to are clearly accursed. Again, God rejected the Jews and formed the Catholic Church. That's That was the concept for much of history. Therefore, we need to identify them and give them two choices. Turn from your wicked ways as a Jewish person, join the Catholic Church, surrender your Jewish identity and convert, or either lose your land in a best case or die. And as an aside, you know, we, we talk frequently about the Ethiopian Jewish communities we serve. Carly, to this day, like 2021, This isn't 1939. This isn't 1492. To this day, Jewish communities in Ethiopia, unfortunately, at the hands of some some radicalized members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, are given the same choice. Convert to Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity, which it's believed there is kind of the new Israel, or lose your land, or we'll burn your huts or we'll actually kill you. Because our theology confirms that God cursed the Jews and has blessed the Orthodox Church. Same idea, maybe by different terms, different location, uh, a national thing versus an international, but it's the same thing repeating itself in history that people naming the name of Christianity, naming the name of Christ, of Jesus the Messiah, are persecuting Jewish people based on replacement theology, whatever it's called. So the Pope making this statement seems like 
a massive turning and repentance, right? From replacement theology and an acceptance rather than a rejection of the Jewish people. And in, in large part, Carly, it is. And let's, as you said, I mean, he's quoting what I was just talking about, this this famous passage from Paul, Romans 11, about the olive tree and the natural branches and the wild branches grafted in. And the Pope himself, God's man, according to the Catholic Church, is using the same passage of scripture and quoting, for the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. On the one hand, it's awesome, but there's always another side of a coin, isn't there? And here's the other thing that's happening. In the rest of Pope Francis's statement on this matter, Carly, he goes on in subtle, very politically correct, very extremely diplomatic terms to emphasize and to confirm and to affirm another version, if you will, of replacement theology, which we'll call dual covenant theology. Well, that's a fancy word, Ezra. What does that mean? Dual covenant theology says the Jews have their path to God. In essence, the Jews have their way to righteous standing with God and salvation, and the Christians have theirs. And these are separate but parallel, and it's all going to work out for both groups. Eventually, God will sort it out for the Jews, and he sorted it out for us either through the Catholic Church or for evangelicals, because there's a lot of evangelicals as well who subscribe to dual covenant theology. Maybe you're listening and you're saying, yeah, I think that's what I've believed, or that's what my pastor or church is teaching. This idea that the Christians have their path, the Jews have theirs, it's all going to work out. And right, Carly, on the surface, it it's very placating. Right. Okay. No pressure for the Jews to accept Jesus. No pressure for Christians to have anything to do with the Jews other than this kind of relationship of mutual respect and admiration from afar, which seems to be what the Pope is emphasizing here. So he's 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 rejecting one dangerous thing, but he's unfortunately affirming another. He's rejecting, praise God, the history of the Catholic Church of viewing the Jewish people as an accursed people, but he's affirming in Christian and Jewish minds in this televised recorded statement that the Jews have a way to righteousness with God. The Jewish people have a way to right standing with God apart from Jesus. And I'll say boldly, sometimes we make bold declarations on this podcast, so I'm going to make one right now. That is not scriptural in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The Bible is clear that all Jew and Gentile alike, it says there's no difference in Romans 3. And Paul's actually quoting the Old Covenant or Old Testament scriptures. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by the grace that is in the Messiah Yeshua. Or in English, we say in in Christ Jesus, in Jesus the Messiah. And it says there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. And then Acts 4.12, there's no, salvation is found through no other name. There's no other name given under heaven to men by which we must be saved, namely the name of Jesus, the Messiah. So let me be absolutely clear. I appreciate, and we appreciate on this podcast, the Pope's effort to reject and repent of and even condemn anti-Semitism and replacement theology in the sense of a view that God has rejected and cursed the Jewish people. But we also have to come up and stand, according to the scriptures, against the idea, the unscriptural, politically correct, but not God-aligned idea that the Jews have their own way to salvation and righteousness. We're not justified by the works. The works are to show us and to convict us of the reality of sin in our hearts since Adam. And God promised a Messiah for Israel and a Savior for the nations, and we know that that is Jesus. So I'll get off my soapbox there, but... Uh, it, I think we just have to be aware. And that's part of what we're doing on this podcast, Carly, is is 
unpacking the headlines, right? Awesome. The Pope comes out against anti-Semitism. That's great. Okay, but what else did he affirm? And is that so great or is that actually perpetuating something dangerous and untrue? So Ezra, isn't basically the whole idea that the Jews broke the old covenant, so God had to make a new covenant with the new people? Or you could say that the Old Testament is for the Jews and the New Testament is for the Christians. I know many Christians who've never even read the Old Testament because they think, you know, that's that's the old covenant. Jesus came and he created the new covenant. So therefore, you know, that that's the church is part of the new covenant and the Jews were part of the old covenant. Yeah, it's a good question, Carly. And right, why do we split it? Why do we call it the old and the new? And even in those words, uh, sometimes we can we can apply our own understanding, right? The old, it's like the old part of the house that needs to be renovated. Something's wrong with it. We need to condemn it. We need to tear it down. We need to rebuild it. And then the new right? Or here's my old car. It's kind of clunky. Doesn't really get me around anymore. Does the job. Maybe not proud of it. And here's the new. This is the one I show everybody because it's clearly better. And the old and the new, I mean, that language is used by Jeremiah. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but I think we create this false dichotomy. And I even a couple of years ago, I'm not going to say the name because it's, it, it's irrelevant, but let's say one of the most listened to pastors in America, a church of tens of thousands of people, great Bible scholar, loves the Lord, bringing thousands of people into relationship with God through Jesus, awesome man of God. And he actually, in a message about the Old and New Covenants, said, you can be a fully devoted follower of Jesus and tear out and get rid of the Old Covenant and you have everything you need. Like from the pulpit, and I'm sitting there, I'm I'm horrified. But maybe you're listening today and going, well, yeah, I mean, I came to faith by reading the New Covenant, New Testament, the Gospels in the New Testament. I see what's going to happen in the last days. I don't see necessarily what's wrong with that. I hear you, but the whole context of the New Covenant, the New Testament, implies that there had to be something before, right? Which sets the foundation for why you would need something new. If it wasn't a new from an old or a new based on the foundation of the old, we could just call it the Testament, right? But it's the New Testament implying there has to be old. Well, where do we get that language? And like you said, Carly, isn't, you know, sometimes there's this idea and we, we can even believe it without thinking too hard about it, that, okay, the Old Testament is law. That's for the Jews. Clearly that's for Israel. It's all about law. It's about death. It's a system that leads to death. And the New Testament is about grace. It's not about the law. It's about grace through faith. It's all about Jesus. It's for the Christians. But there's a problem with that. And let's look at the scriptures here. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And I'm just going to read the first part of that for our audience. But I'd encourage you, grab it on your on your Bible app or wherever you access your scripture content uh, and look at it if you don't believe me. So God's saying to Israel through Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had the difficult job of basically saying to the remaining tribes left in Israel after those in the north were taken away by the Assyrians, you, Jerusalem, are going to be led away captive because of your disobedience. And you know what? You deserve it. And then he also gets the hopeful message of saying, but at the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back in my faithfulness because it's about my faithfulness, not about your faithfulness. That's Jeremiah's message to Israel. And so this is one of the more hopeful parts of that message. And he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There's the language from which we get the name of that last third of our complete NIV or New King James or whatever Bible. When I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. And so we, we have a tendency, Carly, to emphasize that part, right? My covenant, which they broke. Yes, that's right. Israel broke the covenant. That's why God had to make a new covenant. And then we tack on the replacement theology, a new covenant with a new people. But let's look at the first clause here very carefully. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with who? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant was first. The word in Greek is proton, actually, not like the atomic thing, but proton means necessarily first or prioritized. When I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, only for the Jewish people? No, but first for the Jewish people. And Jesus echoes this sentiment. He said, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? The Gentile woman says, Lord, I'm desperate for a touch of you in my life. I need to see your healing power. I need you to intervene in the situation. And he goes, I have come but for the, or I haven't come, but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. My priority here is the salvation is, is proclaiming and then actually enacting through my own blood on the cross, the new covenant for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this non-Jewish woman rightly says, Lord, I'll take whatever of you I can get because something of you is better than nothing. And he says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel. And he, he grants her desire. It's really an awesome passage. Uh, So the gospel, the new covenant is for all who would call upon the name of God. But Jeremiah is very clear that it was first proclaimed and first intended, not exclusively, but first for the Jewish people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So this false dichotomy of of the old covenants for the Jews, they broke it. So the new covenants for the church or Israel, the church is the new Israel. Carly, I just don't see it in the scriptures. We can get there through theological gymnastics, but it's not scriptural. So this is a little bit unrelated, but are you saying to Christians who often say, you know, oh, well, I only need to read the New Testament, that the Old Testament is something that Christians should be reading and it's also written for them. Absolutely. And and here's why. We see it in Corinthians. What happened occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And they there is both the pagan nations, but also namely the children of Israel through our choices throughout history to turn away from God and to turn away from his mercy and righteousness and try to forge our own path, either through works or through idolatrous worship of of beings and created things other than than God himself. But the scriptures are our examples. They're our tutor to lead us to God. Can you get there in just the New Testament? Is Are the gospel accounts in terms of who Jesus is, what he did for us, and proclaiming faith, the invitation to a right relationship with God through him, are those contained in the New Testament in, in the sense that that's sufficient for us? Sure. But if there's a rest of the story that sets up who Jesus is, the family and the generations, the genealogy he came from, why that matters, the promises he fulfilled, and the fatness of the olive tree that I, as a, if I'm a non-Jewish believer in Jesus, have been grafted into, wouldn't I want to know it? So is it essential for salvation? No. Is it important for full understanding of who God is, his holiness, his intent in history, and the fatness of the thing to which you've been grafted into as a believer? Certainly. 
So for those who have been listening, you might be thinking, okay, I've learned a little bit about replacement theology now. Ezra has his viewpoints, but I can think of a lot of different verses in the Bible that support what we're calling replacement theology. So what we're going to do is, uh, if you listen to next week's episode, we're going to go through some of those texts or what you could call proof texts of replacement theology um, and challenge them and see if we can explain you know, what the real intent of those biblical texts are. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening today. As a reminder, you can support this podcast and support Israel and the Jewish people by going to a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. We're also offering our coffee that's sourced directly from Ethiopia that you can get delivered to your door as often as you'd like. More details on that website. We're also giving away a free bag of that each month, and you can enter that giveaway by texting JG to 474747. We've had a ton of you respond to that. Please continue to do that to try to win a bag of our Ethiopian Lost Tribe Coffee. Thanks again so much for listening today. We really appreciate it. If you want to hear more episodes, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also love if you leave us a review. It helps other people find our content. You can follow us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss and engage with us there. If there's anything you want to have us answer or discuss, you can submit your questions on our website, a Jew and a Gentile Discuss.org. Thanks so much and join us next week for another episode. The show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.